0: when the Sprouts were lairds of Wheelhope, which is now a long time ago. There was one of the ladies who was very badly spoken of in the country. People did not just openly assert that Lady Wheelhope was a witch, but everyone had an aversion even at hearing her named, and when, by chance, she happened to be mentioned, old men would shake their heads and say, ah, let us a The less you meddle with her, the better. Old wives would give over spinning, and as a pretence for hearing what might be said about her, poking the fire with the tongs, cocking up their ears all the while, and then, after some meaning coughs, hems and haws, would heartily say "Heau, sirs," and be true that said, or something equally wise and decisive as that. In short, Lady Wheelhope was accounted. A very bad woman. She was an inexorable tyrant in her family, quarrelled with her servants, often cursing them, striking them, and turning them away, especially if they were religious. For these she could not endure, but suspected them of everything bad. Whenever she found out any of the servant men of the laird's establishment for religious characters, she soon gave them up to the military and got them shot. And several girls that were regular in their devotions, she was supposed to have popped off with poison. She was certainly a wicked woman, else many good people were mistaken in her character, and the poor persecuted covenanters were obliged to unite in their prayers against her. As for the laird, he was a stump, a big, dun-faced, fluffy body that cared neither for good nor evil and did not well know the one from the other. He laughed at his lady's tantrums and barleyhoods and the greater the rage that she got into, the laird thought it the better sport. One day, when two servant maids came running to him in great agitation and told them that his lady had felled one of their companions, the laird laughed heartily at them and said he did not doubt it. Why, Sir, how can you laugh? they said. The poor girl is killed. Very likely, very likely, said the Laird. Well, it will teach her to take care who she angers again. And Sir, your lady will be hanged. Yes, very likely, well, it will learn her how to strike so rashly again, will it not, Jessie? But when the same Jessie died suddenly one morning, The laird was greatly confounded, and seemed dimly to comprehend that there had been unfair play-going. There was little doubt that she was taken off by poison, but whether the lady did it through jealousy or not was never divulged, but it greatly bamboozled and astonished the poor laird, for his nerves failed him, and his whole frame became paralytic. He seems to have been exactly in the same state of mind with a collie that I once had. He was extremely fond of the gun as long as I did not kill anything with her, there being no game laws in Ettrick Forest in those days, and he got a grand chase after the hares when I missed them. But there was one day that I chanced for a marvel to shoot one dead a few paces before his nose. I'll never forget the astonishment that the poor beast manifested. He stared one while at the gun and another while at the dead hare, and seemed to be drawing the conclusion that if the case stood thus, there was no creature sure of its life. Finally, he took his tail between his legs and ran away home and would never face a gun all his life again. So it was precisely with Laird Sprott of Wheelhope Along as his lady's wrath produced only noise and splutter among the servants, he thought it fine sport. But when he saw what he believed, the dreadful effects of it, he became like a barrel organ out of tune, and could only discourse one note which he did to everyone he met. I wish Mona had gotten something she's been wore of. This note he repeated early and late, night and day. "'sleeping and waking, alone and in company, "'from the moment that Jessie died till she was buried "'and on going into the churchyard as chief mourner. "'He whispered it to her relations, by the way. "'When they came to the grave, he took his stand at the head, "'nor would he give place to the girl's father, "'but there he stood, like a huge post, "'as though he neither saw nor heard, "'and when he had lowered her late comely head "'into the grave and dropped the cord,' He slowly lifted his hat with one hand, wiped his dim eyes with the back of the other, and said in a deep tremulous tone, Poor lassie. I wish she didn't get something she's been the war of. This death made a great noise among the common people, but there was no protection for the life of the subject in those days and provided a man or woman was a true loyal subject and a real anti-covenanter, any of them might kill as many as they liked. There was no one to take cognizance of the circumstances relating to the death of poor Jesse. After this, the lady walked softly for the space of two or three years, She saw that she had rendered herself odious and had entirely lost her husband's countenance, which she liked worst of all. But the evil propensity could not be overcome, and a poor boy whom the laird out of sheer compassion had taken into his service being found dead one morning, the country people could no longer be restrained. So they went in a body to the sheriff and insisted on an investigation. It was proven that she detested the boy, had often threatened him, and had given him frozen butter the afternoon before he died. But the cause was ultimately dismissed, and the pursuers fined. No one can tell to what height of wickedness she might now have proceeded had not a check of a very singular kind been laid upon her. Among the servants that came home at the next term was one who called himself Meradach. And a strange person he was. He had the form of a boy, but the features of one a hundred years old, save that his eyes had a brilliancy and a restlessness which was very extraordinary, bearing a strong resemblance to the eyes of a well-known species of monkey. He was forward, and perverse in all of his actions, and disregarded the pleasure or displeasure of any person, but he performed his work well and with apparent ease. From the moment that he entered the house, the lady conceived a mortal antipathy against him, and besought the laird to turn him away, but the laird of himself never turned away anybody, and moreover he had hired him for a trivial wage, and the fellow neither wanted activity nor perseverance. The natural consequence of this arrangement was that the lady instantly set herself to make Merodach's life as bitter as it was possible in order to get early quit of a domestic every way so disgusting. Her hatred of him was not like the common antipathy entertained by one human being against another. She hated him as one might hate a toad or an adder and his occupation of jotteryman, as the laird termed his servant of all work, keeping him always about her hand, it must have proved highly disagreeable. She scolded him. She raged at him, but he only mocked her wrath, and giggled and laughed at her with the most provoking derision. She tried to fail him again and again, but never, with all her address, could she hit him, and never did she make a blow at him that she did not repent it. She was heavy and unwieldy, and he as quick as his motions as a monkey. Besides, he generally had her in such an ungovernable rage that when she flew at him, she hardly knew what she was doing. At one time she guided her blow towards him. He and he at the same instant avoided it with such dexterity that she knocked down the chief hind, or foursman, and then Merodach giggled so heartily that, lifting the chicken poker, she threw it at him with a full design of knocking out his brains, but the missile only broke every plate and ashet on the kitchen dresser. She then hasted to the laird, crying bitterly, and telling him that she would not suffer that wretch Merodach, as she called him to stay another night in the family. Why then, put him away and trouble me no more about him, said the laird. Put him away, exclaimed she. I have hardly ordered him away a hundred times and charged him never to let me see his horrible face again, but he only flouts me and tells me he'll see me at the devil first. The pernacity of the fellow amused the laird exceedingly, his dim eyes turned upwards into his head with delight and then looked two ways at once, turned round his back and laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks. But he could only articulate, you're fitted now. The lady's agony of rage still increasing from this derision, she flew on the laird and said he was not worthy the name of a man if he did not turn away that pestilence after the way he had abused her. Why, shushy, my dear, what has he done to you? What done to me? Has he not caused me to knock down John Thompson, and I do not know if he'll ever come to life again? Have you felled your favourite John Thompson, said the Laird, laughing more heartily than before. You might have done a worse deed than that, but what evil has John done? And has he not broke every plate and dish on the whole dresser? continued the lady, disregarding the laird's question, and for all this devastation he only mocks at my displeasure, absolutely mocks me, and if you do not have him turned away and hanged or shot for his deeds, you are not worthy the name of a man. Oh alack, what a devastation among the china metal, said the laird, and calling on Meridach he said, "'Tell me, thou evil Meridach of Babylon!' How thou darest knock down thy lady's favourite servant, John Thompson!
1: Not I, your honour. It was my lady herself who got into such a furious rage at me that she mistook her man and felled Mister Thompson, and the good man's skull is fractured.
0: Well, that's very odd," said the laird, chuckling. "I do not comprehend it. But then, what the devil set you in smashing all my lady's Delft and china ware?" That was a most infamous and provoking action.
1: It was she herself, Your Honour. Sorry would have been here to broken one dish belonging to the house. I take all the house servants to witness that my lady smashed all the dishes with a poker and now lays the blame on me. The laird turned his dim and delighted eyes
0: on his lady who was now crying with vexation and rage, and seemed meditating another personal attack on the culprit, which he did not all appear to shun, but rather encourage. She, however, vented her wrath in threatenings of the most deep and desperate revenge, the creature all the while assuring her that she would be foiled, and that in all her encounters and contests with him, she would uniformly come to the worst. He was resolved to do his duty." and there, before his master, he defied her. The laird thought more than he considered it prudent to reveal, but he had little doubt that his wife would wreak that vengeance on his jotteryman which she avowed, and as little of her capability. He almost shuddered when he recollected the one who had taken something that she had been wore of. In a word, the Lady of Wheelhope's. A malignity against this one object was like the rod of Moses that swallowed up the rest of the serpents. All her wicked and evil propensities seemed to be superseded by it, if not utterly absorbed in its virtues. The rest of the family now lived in comparative peace and quietness, for early and late her malevolence was venting itself against the jotteryman and him alone. It was a delirium of hatred and vengeance on which the whole bent and bias of her inclination was set. She could not stay away from the creature's presence for in the intervals when absent from him she spent her breath in curses and excreations and then not able to rest. She ran again to seek him her eyes gleaming with the anticipated delights of vengeance while ever and anon all the scathe, the ridicule and the harm rebounded on herself. Was it not strange that she could not get quit of this sole annoyance of her life? One would have thought she easily might, but by this time there was nothing farther from her intention. She wanted vengeance, full, adequate, and delicious vengeance, on her audacious opponent. But he was a strange and terrible creature, and the means of retaliation came always, as it were, to his hand. Bread and sweet milk was the only fare that Meridach cared for, and he having bargained for that would not want it, though he often got it with a curse and with ill will. The lady having intentionally kept back his wanted allowance for some days on the Sabbath morning following, she set him down a bowl of rich sweet milk, well drugged with a deadly poison and then she lingered in the anteroom to watch the success of her grand plot and prevent any other creature from tasting the potion. Meridach came in, and the housemaid said to him, There is your breakfast,
1: creature. Oho, my lady has been liberal this morning, said he, but I am beforehand with her. Here, little missy, you seem very hungry today. Take you my breakfast. And with that he set the beverage down to the lady's little
0: favourite spaniel. It so happened that the lady's only son came in at that instant into the ante room seeking her and teasing his mamma about something which took her attention from the hall table for a space. When she looked again and saw Missy lapping up the sweet milk, She burst from her lobby like a dragon, screaming as if her head had been on fire, kicked the bowl and the remainder of its contents against the wall, and lifting Missy in her bosom, she retreated hastily, crying all the way. (laughs) Ha ha! I have you now, cried Meridach, as she vanished from the hall. Poor Missy died immediately, and very privately. Indeed, she would have died and been buried, and never one have seen her, save her mistress, had not Meridach, by the luck that never failed him, popped his nose over the flower garden wall just as the lady was laying her favourite in a grave of her own digging. She, not perceiving her tormentor, plied on at her task, apostrophising the incent little carcass. Ah, poor dear little creature, thou'st has had a hard fortune, and has drank from the bitter poison that was not intended for thee. But he shall drink it three times double for thy sake.
1: Is that little Missy?
0: said the eldritch voice of the jotteryman, close at the lady's ear. She uttered a loud scream, and sunk down on the bank. Alagh for poor little Missy,
1: continued the creature in a tone of mockery. My heart is sorry for Missy. What has befallen her? Whose breakfast cup did she drink? Hence with thee, thou fiend,
0: cried the lady. What right hast thou to intrude on thy mistress's privacy? Thy turn is coming yet, or may the nature of woman change within me.
1: It has changed already, said the creature grinning with delight. I have thee now, I have thee now. And will it not shew my superiority over thee, which I do every hour, I should soon see thee strapped like a mad cat or a worrying bratch. What wilt thou try next? I will cut
0: thou throat, and if I die for it will rejoice in the deed, a deed of charity
1: to all that dwell in the face of the earth. Go about thy business. I have warned thee before, dame, and now I warn thee again, that all thy mischief meditated against me will fall double on thine own head.
0: I want none of your warning and none of your instructions, fiendish cur. Hence with your elvish face and take care of yourself. It would be too disgusting and horrible to relate or read all of the incidents that fell out between this unaccountable couple. Their enmity against each other had no end and no mitigation and scarcely a single day passed over in which her acts of malevolent ingenuity did not terminate fatally for some favourite thing of the ladies. while all these doings never failed to appear as her own act. Scarcely there was a thing, animate or inanimate, on which she set a value left to her that was not destroyed, and yet scarcely one hour or minute could she remain absent from her tormentor, and all the while it seemed solely for the purpose of tormenting him. But, while all the rest of the establishment enjoyed peace and quietness, from the fury of their tergument dame, matters still grew worse and worse between the fascinated pair. The lady haunted the menial in the same manner as the raven haunts the eagle for a perpetual quarrel, though the former knows that in every encounter she is to come off the loser. But now noises were heard on the stairs by night, and it was whispered among the menials that the lady had been seeking Meridach's bed by night, on some horrible intent. Several of them would have sworn that they had seen her passing and repassing on the stair after midnight, when all was quiet. But then it was likewise well known that Meridach slept with well-fastened doors and a companion in another bed in the same room whose bed, too, was nearest the door. Nobody cared much what became of the jotteryman, for he was an unsociable and disagreeable person, but someone told him what they had seen and hinted a suspicion of the lady's intent. But the creature only bit his upper lip, wrinkled with his eyes,
1: and said, ''She had better let it alone. She will be the first to rue that.'' Not long after this, to the horror
0: of the family, the whole countryside the laird's only son was found murdered in his bed one morning under circumstances that manifested the most fiendish cruelty on the part of his destroyer as soon as the atrocious act was divulged the lady fell into convulsions and lost her reason and happy had it been for her had she never removed either the use of reason or her corporeal functions anymore for there was blood upon her hand, which she took no care to conceal, and there was too little doubt that it was the blood of her own innocent and beloved boy, the sole heir and hope of the family. This blow deprived the laird of all power of action, but the lady had a brother, a man of the law, who came and instantly proceeded to an investigation of this unaccountable murder. But before the sheriff arrived, the housekeeper took the lady's brother aside and told him he had better not go on with the scrutiny, for she was sure the crime would be brought home to her unfortunate mistress. And after examining into several corroborative circumstances and viewing the state of the raving maniac with the blood on her hand and arm, he made the investigation a very short one, declaring the domestics all exculpated. The laird attended his boy's funeral and laid his head in the grave, but appeared exactly like a man walking in a trance, without feelings or sensations, oftentimes gazing at the funeral procession as on something he could not comprehend, and when the death bell of the parish church fell a tolling. As the corpse approached the Kirkstyle, he cast a dim eye up towards the belfry and said hastily, What? What's that? Oh, aye, we're just in time. Just in time. And often he was stammering over the name of evil Meridach, king of Babylon, to himself. He seemed to have some far-fetched conception that his unaccountable journeyman had a hand in the death of his only son, and other lesser calamities, although the evidence in favor of Meridach's innocence was usually quite decisive. The grievous mistake of Lady Wheelhope, for every landward's laird's wife was then styled lady, can only be accounted for by supposing her in a state of derangement, or rather under some evil influence over which she had no control and to a person in such a state, the mistake was not so very unnatural. The mansion house of Wheelhope was old and irregular. The stair had four acute turns, all the same, and four landing places, all the same. In the uppermost chamber slept the two domestics, Meridach and the bed farthest in, and then the chamber immediately below that, which was exactly similar, slept the young laird and his tutor, the former in the bed farthest in, and thus, in the turmoil of raging passions, her own hand made herself childless. Meridach was expelled from the family forthwith, but refused to accept of his wages, which the man of law pressed upon him for fear of farther mischief. But he went away in apparent sullenness and discontent, No one knowing whither. When his dismissal was announced to the lady, who was watched day and night in her chamber, the news had such an effect on her that her whole frame seemed electrified. The horrors of remorse vanished, and another passion which I neither can comprehend nor define took the sole possession of her distempered spirit. He must not go! He shall not go! she exclaimed. No, no, he shall not. He shall not. And then she instantly set herself about making ready to follow him, uttering all the while the most diabolical expressions indicative of anticipated vengeance. Oh, but I could just snap his nerves one by one and burl among the vitals. Could I but slice his heart off piecemeal in small messes and see his blood lopper and bubble and spin away in purple sleighs? And then to see him grin and grin and grin. Oh, how beautiful and grand a sight it would be to see him grin and grin and grin. And in such a style would she run on for hours together. She thought of nothing and spoke of nothing, but the discarded jotteryman, whom most people now began to disregard as a creature that was not canny. They had seen him eat and drink and work like other people. Still, he had that about him that was not like other men. He was a boy in form and an antediluvian in feature. Some thought he was a mule between a Jew and an ape, some a wizard, some a kelpie or a fairy, but most of all, He was really and truly a brownie. What he was, I do not know, and therefore will not pretend to say, but be that as it may, in spite of locks and keys, watching and waking, the lady of Wheelhope soon made her escape and eloped after him. The attendants, indeed, would have made oath that she was carried away by some invisible hand, for that it was impossible she could have escaped on foot like other people, and this edition of the story took in the country, but sensible people viewed the matter in another light. As, for instance, when Watty Blythe, the Laird's old shepherd, came in from the hill one morning, his wife Bessie thus accosted him. His presence be about as Watty Blythe. Have you heard what happened at the hall? Things are aye turning war and war over there and it looks like his providence had geeing up on her laird's house to destruction. This grand estate man now going for the Sprots for it's finished them. Nah, nah, Bessie. It is not the estate that's finished the Sprots but the sprouts that have finished it and themselves into the boot. They've been wicked and degenerate race and either the they war till they reach the utmost bounds of earthly wickedness and it's time the deal was looking after them. Ah what a Blythe You never said a truer say And that's just the very point Where your story ends And mine commences For has neither the devil Or the fairies Or the brownies Taken away our lady bodily, And other the natural countries Running and riding In search of her And there is twenty hundred mercs Offered to the first man That can find her And bring her back safe They hate taken her away Skin and bane Body and soul Ah oh, what but that's awesome. And where's it thought they've taken her to, Bessie? Oh, they've got some grass that freer aren't hints afore. It's thought that they carried her after that Satan of a creature what rots the muckle way about the house. It's for him they're looking, for they ken well. And will they get the tain, they will get the t'other. Is that the gate, Bessie? Why then, the awful story is neither mere nor less than this that the lady has made allotment, and they can't and run away after a black-geared jotteryman. Weighs me for human frailty, but that's just the gate. When Inch the deal gets in the point of his finger, he will soon have his hall hand, aye. He wants but a hair to make a tether of ony day. I hae seen her in broth saunce last, but even then I feared she was devoted to destruction. For she aye mock it at religion, Bessie, and that's no a good mark a young lady and she made all its servants her enemies. And you think these good men's prayers are ought to blow with the wind, and be nae mere regarded? Nah, Bessie, my woman, you take this, Mark Bath, around bairns and other folks. If you ever see a young body that disregards the Sabbath, and makes a mock at the ordinances of religion, you will never see that body come to muckle good. And a broad hand she has made her own jibs and jeers at religion, and her mockeries of the poor persecuted hill folk sunk down by degrees of the very dregs of sin and misery, run away after a scullion. Why, how can you say that? It was well-kent that she hated him with a perfect and mortal hatred and tried to make a way with a mares in end. Ah, Bessie... But nipping and scarting of the Scots folks wooing, and though it was right, but we suspended her judgment, she'll be nabody to persuade me, if she be found along with a creature, but that she has run away after him up in the natural way, on her twa shanks without help for either fairy nor brownie. I'll never believe a thing of any woman born, let be the lady wee up in years. God help you, Bessie, ye didn't kind of stretch your corrupt nature, the best of us, when left to ourselves are nay better than strayed sheep, that will never find their way back to earn pastures, and other the things made of mortal flesh, a wicked woman is the worst. Ach, a day, we get the blame of everything that we little deserve, but why, ye keep a gay and sharp look out among the cloaks and claves of our glen, or hope as ye can't, for the lady kens them a gay wheel, and gin the twenty hunner merks would come our way, it might gang a war gate. Aye, will I want, Bessie, that's nearly. And now, when you bring me a mind o' it, they'll forgive me I dinna hear up a creature up at the Brock Holes this morning, skirting, as if something were cutting its throat. It gears o' the hair stand in the back o' my head when I think it may be a lady, and the droits of a creature murderin' her. I took it for a battle o' wildcats and wished they might put out the others trapples, but when I think on it again, they were unlike anything that I've heard afore. His presence be about us, Watty, haste ye put on your bonnet, take out your staff in your hand, and gang see what it is. Shame for me, I adore gang, Bessie. Watty, trust in the Lord. Ah we'll say I do but he ain't not to throw himself ower the lynn and trust in the Lord to keep him on a blanket, nor hang himself up in a rape and expect the Lord to come out and cut him down, and that's near muckle safer than the old stiff man to gang away with a wild remote place where there's a murderin another. But what's that I hear, Bessie? Hod the lang tongue of you and run to the door and see what the noise is. Bessie then ran to the door, but soon returned as an altered creature, with her mouth wide open, and her eyes set in her head. It's them, Wattie, it's them. His presence be about us. What will we do? Them? What in them? That blackguard creature coming here, leading our lady to the hair of the head, and yanking her way a stick. I'm terrified out of my wits. What will we do? We'll see what they said, said Wattie. Manifestly, in as great a terror as his wife, and by a natural impulse, or as a last recourse, he opened the Bible, not knowing what he did, and then hurried on his spectacles. But before he got two leaves turned over, the two entered. A frightful-looking couple indeed, Meradach, with his old, withered face and ferret eyes, leading the Lady of Wheelhope by the long hair, which was mixed with grey, and whose face was all bloated with wounds and bruises, and having stripes of blood on her garments. How's this? How's this, sirs? said
1: Watty Blythe. "'Close that book, and I will tell you, good man,' said Meridach. "'I can hear what
0: you hate to say in Brung open, sir,' said Watty, "'turning over the leaves as if looking for some particular passage, "'but apparently not knowing what he was doing. "'It's a shameful business, this, but some will hate to answer it for my lady, "'and I'm ungrieved to see you in such a plight. "'You surely been doomed here left to your cell?' The lady shook her head, uttered a feeble, hollow laugh, and fixed her eyes on Meridach. But such a look. It almost frightened the simple, aged couple out of their senses. It was a look of love, nor of hatred exclusively. Neither was it of desire or disgust, but it was a combination of them all. It was such a look as one fiend would cast on another, in whose everlasting destruction he rejoiced. Watty was glad to take his eyes from such countenances and looked into the Bible, that firm foundation of all his hopes and all his joy. "'I request
1: that you shut that book, sir,' said the horrible creature. "'Or, if you do not, I will shut it for you with a vengeance, and with
0: that he seized it and flung it against the wall. Bessie uttered a scream, and Watty was quite paralysed, and although he seemed disposed to run after his best friend, as he called it, the hellish looks of the brownie interposed and glued him to your seat.
1: Hear what I have to say first, said the creature, and then pour your fill on that precious book of yours. One concern at a time is enough. I came to do you a service. Here, take this cursed wretched woman whom you style your lady and deliver her up to the lawful authorities to be restored to her husband and her place in society. She has come upon one that hates her and never said one kind word to her in his life. And though I have beat her like a dog she still clings to me and will not depart, so enchanted is she with the laudable purpose of cutting my own throat. Tell your master and her brother that I am not to be burdened with her maniac. I have scourged, I have spurned and kicked her, afflicting her day and night, and yet from my side she will not depart. Take her, claim the full reward and your fortune is made, and so, farewell. The creature bowed and went away,
0: but the moment his back was turned, the lady fell a-screaming and struggling with one in agony, and in spite of all the old couple's exertions, she forced herself out of their hands and ran after the retreating Meridach. When he saw better would not be, he turned upon her and by one blow with his stick struck her down. And not content with that, he continued to kick and baste her in such a manner as to all appearance would have killed twenty ordinary persons. The poor devoted dame could do nothing, but now and then utter a squeak like a half-worried cat and writhe and grovel on the sword. Till Watty and his wife came up and withheld her tormentor from further violence. He then bound her hands behind her with a long, strong cord, and delivered her once more to the charge of the old couple, who contrived to hold her by that means and take her home. Watty had not the face to take her into the hall, but into one of the outhouses where he brought her brother to receive her. The man of the law was manifestly vexed at her reappearance and scrupled not to testify his dissatisfaction for when Watty told him how the wretch had abused his sister and that had it not been for Bessie's interference on his own the lady would have been killed outright. Why Walter, it's a great pity that he did not kill her outright, said he. What good can her life now do to her? or of what value is a life to any creature living? After one has lived to disgrace all connected with them, the sooner they are taken off, the better. The man, however, paid Walter down to his 2,000 merks, a great fortune for one like him in those days, and not to dwell longer on this unnatural story. I shall only add, very shortly, that the Lady of Wheelhope soon made her escape once more, and flew, as if by an irresistible charm, to her tormentor, Meridach. Her friends looked no more after her, and the last time she was seen alive, it was following the uncouth creature up the water of Dor, weary, wounded, and lame, while he was all the way beating her, as if a piece of excellent amusement. A few days after that, her body was found among some wild hags in a place called Crookburn by a party of the persecuted covenanters that were in hiding there, some of the very men whom she had exerted herself to destroy and who had been driven, like David of old, to pray for a curse and earthly punishment upon her. They buried her like a dog in the yetts of Keppel, and rolled three huge stones upon her grave, which are lying there to this day. When they found her corpse, it was mangled and wounded in a most shocking manner, the fiendish creature having manifestly tormented her to death. He was never more seen or heard of in this kingdom, though all that countryside was kept in terror by him for many years afterwards, and to this day... They will tell you of the Brownie of the Black Hags, which title he seems to have acquired after his disappearance. This story was told to me by an old man named Arthur Halliday, whose great-grandfather, Thomas Halliday, was one of those that found the body and buried it. It is many years since I heard it, but however ridiculous it may appear, I remember it made a dreadful impression on my young mind. I never heard any story quite like it, save one of an old foxhound that pursued a fox through the Grampians for a fortnight, and when at last discovered by the Duke of Athol's people, neither of them could run. But the hound was still continuing to walk after the fox and when the latter lay down the other lay down beside him and looked at him steadily all the while, though unable to do him the least harm. The passion of inveterate malice seems to have influenced these two exactly alike, but upon the whole I scarcely believe the tale can actually be true.
1: The Brownie of the Black Hags by James Hogg was read by Victor First Mornington. First published in Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, October 1828. Music by Kevin MacLeod. The presence of brownies in New Babbage is officially denied by the mayor's office and the civic guild of watchmakers. Tales from New Babbage is produced for Radio reel by the citizens of the city-state of New Babbage and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, Share Alike, April 2011.